Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you for welcoming me to share God's word with you here this morning. Uh, this morning's message comes from a passage uh, that I've been thinking on ever since the 31st of December. This sermon was inspired, you might say, by Harvest 2021. If you didn't already know, I'm a farmer and it was a wet harvest. It was a harvest where many found themselves bogging repeatedly. But not me. In my shiny new machine with its jewel wheels, I'd managed most of harvest not to bog. I had confidence until my first bog on Christmas Eve. Luckily, that one wasn't too bad. And my brother-in-law, who was there driving the chaser bin, he was able to pull me out. But then on the 30th of December, while harvesting wheat, I was turning loaded on a headland. It was part of the paddock I'd harvested already, and I'd driven on it many, many times the day before. But in what seemed like an instant, the ground gave way and my left wheel dropped into a slurry of miry soil. Still, I had confidence. I could get out of this. I won't go into all the details. You see, the location was below a large dam which was filled to the brim. I didn't know the history of this site, but Apparently, it had been a big washed gutter in years before that had been backfilled by Soilcon before we owned this farm. The nature of the soil was such that it appeared firm above. Not far down, it was a saturated slurry. Suffice to say that the more we tried, the worse our situation. As the day drew to a close, we knew we needed outside help. Luckily for us, a neighbour owned an excavator. To cut a very long story short, uh, which involved some hand digging around the axle, <laughs> it was horrible. The following day, he managed, after some difficulty, to extract us from the bog. I can't begin to tell you what a mixture of emotion I felt. The following days, as I harvested, running through my mind were the words of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard me cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Before we begin delving deeper, let's pray. Father God, we just pray you would speak to us this morning from your word that we would see what a complete and amazing rescue you have shown us, that we might delight in you more and live for you with joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, Psalm 40 comes towards the end of the first book of, the, the first book of Psalms. It's a psalm of David which draws heavily on the previous psalms and the themes they raise, sort of drawing them all together. It's in its final verses, they actually appear as a whole separate psalm later on where they're quoted verbatim. But being a psalm, the nature of it is to be poetic, conveying truth through imagery and structure. According to some scholars, this psalm takes a pattern similar to many psalms of A, B, C, C, B, A. 
It's a pattern that flows and returns on itself. Michael Wilcock, in his commentary on the psalm, gives a helpful six-point structure, looking backward, looking upward, looking inward, looking outward, looking around and looking forward. We begin by looking back. I want us to begin by thinking of the imagery of the psalm. I don't know about you, but the thing that captures the mind's eye and lingers with us is this imagery of the pit and of the rescue. Now, David doesn't tie this to a single event, but I can't help but wonder what in his lifetime has he seen or experienced to give him this vivid imagery? Maybe as a warrior king, he's remembering times when a chariot or men or horses have found themselves floundering in a bog uh, with the threat of conflict and imminent danger. Many battles have been won or lost because of such things. Consider the Battle of Waterloo, for example, where the weather made the battleground just treacherous for the French. Maybe David had experienced this. You could just imagine him in a chariot, helplessly trapped as the ground opens to swallow him. Or perhaps David remembers his days as a shepherd, and I could relate. You see, sheep will sometimes go into terrible situations, as I discovered yesterday. During the last drought, though, as dams ran low, sometimes the silty edges would become treacherous for sheep. They would go in looking for water, and they find themselves deep in mud, unable to retreat, unable to get themselves out. In fact, left to their own devices, they'll make it worse and often end up dying. It takes someone to rescue them to drag them onto firm ground so they can get going again. Maybe David has seen something like this. Regardless of what it is, we see it and we understand it universally. It's the quicksand like you see in The Princess Bride. It's the treacherous mangrove swamp which my wife, Tanya, led our entire family into at Port Macquarie. It's a muddy dam. It's the header bog. It's the treacherous soil of the Canterbury Plains in New Zealand which liquefies under you in response to an earthquake back in 2011. It's a fearful thing to find yourself in a position where you can't trust the ground underneath your feet. It's said that following such events, people often live with a fear that they just can't trust the ground they're on. I can relate because it's how I felt after my header bog. Where could I drive that was safe? I couldn't get out of that paddock fast enough and I was pretty nervous in all the rest of them. That's the image we have here. Held firm in a treacherous pit, unable to rescue oneself, appearing helpless and yet not. When you realise all of this, you should marvel all the more at David's opening words. I waited patiently for the Lord. Of all the adverbs to use in this situation, the last I would pick would be patiently. I mean, think about it. You're stuck in a pit. I waited nervously, anxiously, despairingly, helplessly, if anything, impatiently. Why patiently? The primary reason is who the psalmist is waiting for. While there can be no confidence in self-rescue, there is confidence in the Lord. 
He cannot save himself, but God can and he knows it. God in his own good time throughout generations has been the rescue for many. And here he is their only hope. Hence why the person waits patiently, but not silently. If God is our only hope, call to him. The result? God hears. Marvel at that. God hears, and that matters. It leads to a full and complete rescue. He's not thrown a rope to drag himself out. He's not dragged to the edge of the pit where he can claw his way onto bare earth. But in his helpless state, he is lifted completely out and placed in a location of absolute confidence and security. I like, I speak a little bit of French, and I like how my French Bible puts it when he says, He plants my two feet on a rock. The imagery paints a full and complete picture of God's salvation. It's on display for all, and it produces appropriate fear, praise, and trust in those who see it. I think the imagery is so powerful that we probably fail to see beyond it a bit in this psalm. I mean, we know this psalm for these verses, not for what comes after them. But what comes after matters in the context, as we'll see. My immediate temptation is to want to address what the pit is. What is the danger that David refers to? And I found myself tempted to jump ahead, but I don't think the psalm lets me do it. After looking back on the rescue, David's first response is to look up to the rescuer. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 there. David finds complete happiness in God. It's the life of the blessed man, as we find in Psalm 1, who finds his delight in God's word and who doesn't pursue the scoundrels, the scoffers and the sinners. Much like here, in verse 4, we find there could be the temptation to look for security in the proud or the deceitful, in those who proffer help but lead to a bitter end. Instead, David delights in God, noting three things, and it feels to me a little bit too simply. God's wondrous works are innumerable. He is incomparable. The extent of all he has done is unspeakable. I pause here and wonder if David's a bit lazy. I mean, it feels like he should give us a few examples or something, doesn't it? But as I thought on that, I realised to do so would actually undermine David's point here. There will be other places and times to dwell on these specifics. But David's point here is that knowing God is just simply mind-blowing. His goodness goes beyond comprehension. There is full blessedness in trusting God. There's an old hymn that says, We may trust him fully, all for us to do. Those who trust him wholly, find him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Friends, that's the image here. God as all in all for those who trust in him, beyond any bounds we could imagine. Our gaze is then shifted from the inward, upward to the inward. What do we learn about the one who is rescued? It's primarily about their relationship to the rescuer. 
Firstly, the reference in verse 6 would remind the Israelites immediately of Samuel's words to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. You come with me there if you've got your Bibles or it's on here on the screen. To set the scene, Saul had been instructed by God to wipe out the Amalekites and destroy everything. Instead, he decides to keep all the livestock. And when Samuel confronts Saul about it, Saul says conveniently that he thought they'd make good sacrifices to God. But we read, But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The reality is the sacrifice becomes irrelevant, even disdainful, when the heart offering it is in rebellion to God that he is offering it to. God sees the heart. David, the writer of this psalm, knows that. It's for this very reason he became king and Saul was rejected. David was described as a man after God's heart. This psalm reflects that. The one here in the psalm knows obedience matters more than sacrifice. The second thing to note here is that the obedient one has had his ears opened. It makes me think of the parable of the sower. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This one does hear, but he acknowledges that his hearing comes by the grace of God. Look at how it's described in verse 6. God has opened his ears. Actually, apparently more literally, it reads that God has actually punctured or pierced his ear holes open to hear. It's vivid and graphic. Having heard then, this person becomes very much like the seed that fell on the good soil in the parable. Look at verses 7 and 8. What they hear is the word of God. And it's planted deep in them such that it produces delight in obedience. This person is the pattern of what we're called to as those who follow God. Hearing, obeying, abiding, delighting. I guess this raises the question, who truly is like this? Who can claim to walk in this way with God without fault? And we'll come back to that later. The psalm now moves to an outward focus. What we have now is an overflow from the heart of the one who, work, or who walks with God in verses 9 to 11. The knowledge of God is not to be concealed, but proclaimed. He tells of all God's salvation and faithfulness, never hiding God's love and truth, and knowing God is with him as he does this. But this stands to reason, doesn't it? In 1938... Nazi Germany moved to occupy Czechoslovakia. A British man named Nicholas Winton set up a scheme to get children in danger out of the country to Britain where they were placed with families. Thus he saved the lives of many, mostly Jews. His efforts went unnoticed until years later his wife found records and lists of all the names of those he had saved. In 1988, Nicholas attended the studio audience of a TV show called That's Life. What he didn't know was the whole show was to pay tribute to him. 
The studio audience was made entirely of the people he had saved, who as one stood around him, acknowledging his role in saving them, declaring before the world that they owed their lives to him. An incredibly moving and appropriate acknowledgement. Who could stay silent when they knew what he'd done for them? They wanted the world to know. So for those uh, who have been saved by God. Who can stay silent? The world should know. We get now to what was alluded to at the start of the psalm. As we look around, we finally get to the nature of the pit. And it's a chilling and fearful place. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy, Edmund and Eustace sail with Caspian to the ends of the world to find what has become of a group of lords who years before had set sail and disappeared, never to return. One particular island they come to is Dark Island. Here they discover Lord Roop begging to be taken on board or, or even killed. He's driven insane by terror. You see, it was the island where dreams come true. But real dreams, the thing that comes from a man's own mind in the dark of night, Having sailed into the island, the crew realise they can't escape and they find themselves driven to terror of what comes from within their own minds. It's a terrifying picture and it's similar to what we have here. Just as God's mercies were innumerable earlier, so too are the troubles in verse 12. Overwhelming, blinding, terrifying and firstly coming from within. Here we have man at his most lost, most desperate, most helpless state. This is the nature of the pit of sin. We find ourselves deep in it, wallowing, unable to help ourselves. The mud and the filth sticking to us. And try as we might, we cannot escape. Left to our own devices, we won't. As the psalmist wrestles with his sinfulness, courage fails. But prayer comes forth. In verse 13 we read, Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. In the story I mentioned earlier, Lucy in the darkness prays and calls out to Aslan for rescue. Miraculously, a shaft of light appears and with it an albatross which circles over the top of her head and whispers, Courage, dear heart, before flying in the direction that leads them out of darkness into light and safety. When you are in the pit of sin, you cannot dig yourself out. Cry out to God. It's the same picture we see in Romans 7, where we read, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we could linger here, but the psalmist draws us on to what is a more expected danger. In verses 14 and 15, we encounter external foes. Evil intent, hateful desires, scoffers, determined to bring this man of God down. And they take pleasure in it too. This is perhaps somewhat of what we would expect. We see it in our own world. What the writer calls for here is justice. It's not a specific prayer as such, but in a sense, 
It appeals to the God who sees, weighs, and knows men's hearts. It's a call for the humbling of the proud, for things to be put right. There's also a sense here that we ourselves do not really hold the power to set the world right, and we must appeal to the one who can. Now we come to the last part of our passage. We look forward. In verse 16 we read, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. It's a victorious note to close on. The God who lifts and rescues the one who calls on him from the pit of sin and the brokenness of this world. Lifted out, living with joy and gladness, proclaiming the greatness of the God who rescues. It's a great note to end on, isn't it? The problem is, it's not the end. Verse 17 says, But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Do you find this as confounding as I do? The one rescued from the pit seems to still finish in the pit. I mean, what's going on here? Was he rescued or is he still to be rescued? It's a humbling end. The psalmist acknowledges his weakness and thus his dependence on the God who rescues. I think there's a sense of realism at the end. While victorious and confident in God's salvation, the battles of life go on, both within our hearts and within the world in which we live. Our only hope is the God who delivers, God with us, Emmanuel, which leads me to the last part of our passage, our message. Did you know that Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm? that it speaks of and it is quoted about Jesus. Come with me to Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 14. Then when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What Hebrews quotes here is a paraphrase of Psalm 40. Do you remember the question I asked earlier? Who is the obedient one in Psalm 40? Who can claim to walk in this way with God without fault? The obedient one in verses 8 and 9 here is Jesus, the one who lives in perfect alignment to the will of his Father. The one free of sin becomes a sacrifice, cleansing us for ours. At the cross, he faces the curse of our sin. He cries out to God and is forsaken, that we might not be. But he is vindicated and raised from the pit of the curse of sin to new life. And in so doing, he raises us from ours. Praise be to God who heard our cry from the pit and sent his son into the world that we might be raised with him from the mire 
and set firmly on the rock. Maybe for you today, you're still wallowing and wrestling with your own sin. Let me assure you today, you need outside help. Cry to God and he will rescue you. For those who have called to him asking to be saved, what a complete rescue we have. Look back on it and marvel. Let it fill you with confidence. Do you still wrestle with sin? God is with you. He has lifted you up through Christ. Look to him in your ongoing struggles. Maybe you struggle with the brokenness of this world and the scoffers who would bring you down. Look back at God's rescue through Christ. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither, uh, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Doesn't it stir your affections and make you want to sing a new song of praise to our God, just as Psalm 40 says? I'm going to finish with the lyrics of a song. But to give you context, a while back a friend shared a post on Facebook. It was a group of Ukrainian Christians gathering a little while back as Russian troops were gathering on their border. What a fearful time. An enemy who scoffs at them saying, aha, aha. What a pit to be in. But what did they do? Reflecting on the rescue of Christ and their certain steadfast hope, they sang, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my Saviour loves me so, he will hold me fast. Praise be to the God who has rescued us. Let's pray. Father God, we delight in your goodness to us today. Lord, we were without help, lost in our sin, but you rescued us through Christ. You lifted us out, in the, out of the pit and set our feet on a rock. We praise you for your complete salvation. Help us to live honouring you in obedience, delighting in your salvation. Give us confidence as we face the difficulties from within and around us in this world to know that you are with us, that you are our salvation. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.